Well, here we are this morning in our third week in Psalm 51. And I have to tell you, when we planned out this sermon series, this was not the plan. Uh, we never looked at it and said, you know what, we need three weeks in Psalm 51. It's just that when we got into it, and when you study it deeply, you begin to see how powerful it is and how important it is uh, for us as believers. And then I was at our, our elder meeting last week, and my fellow elders absolutely insisted that we take another Sunday and wring out every drop of what God has for us in this amazing psalm. So today we're looking at verses 14 to 17, and then I promise we will, we will move on to another psalm beginning next week. Well, years ago, I read an article on a theological blog, and the author made the case that three out of the four most common commands in Scripture are these. You ready? Three of the, most, of the four most common commands. Praise the Lord, rejoice, and give thanks. Interesting, huh? Now, I haven't gone out to verify that, but if it's true, it doesn't surprise me because my Bible software says that the word praise is found 256 times in the Bible. The word rejoice is found 191 times. Thanks or thanksgiving is found 143 times. So it seems to check out. That's a lot of uses of just three words. Now, what does that tell us? That's the big question. Or more precisely, what does that tell us about what God wants for his people? What does it tell us about what God wants for you and I? as disciples. Well, it appears that he wants us to live in a certain state or, or posture. He wants us to have a disposition of happiness and joy and exuberance and, yes, thankfulness. And that he wants us to have that now, not just in heaven someday, but now while we live in this fallen world and, and not just during seasons of life when things get easier, they get smoother or they're less trouble-filled. Now, as I say that, that's not to dismiss the trials that any of us are going through right now. We live in a fallen world, and it, it's always going to come with its share of trials. But in the midst of those storms, God tells us in his word that we can have the kind of faith and hope that will produce those three things in our lives, right? Praise. What's the second one? Just testing you. Praise, joy, good, and thankfulness, even in the midst of the storm. Now, how does God want us to praise him? Well, first, let me say how he doesn't want us to praise him. It's always good to look at the negative first. He doesn't want empty words. He doesn't want empty ritual while our hearts are off somewhere else focused on other things. That's what he doesn't want. What he wants is for us to lift our eyes and to see him and to know him according to what he has revealed about himself to us. And as we see that, as we understand who we are and we understand who he is, that it produces in us a sense of love and a sense of awe, so much so that we can't help but to use our lips to praise his name. That's what he wants. He wants us to remember that no matter what happens in this life, if we belong to him, nothing can separate us from his love. He wants us to know that he's working all things, even our trials, together for good for us. He wants us to look past all the things in this fallen world that frustrate us and anger us and disappoint us and discourage us and even sadden us and to see in the midst of that his lavish, all-sufficient grace. This is all part of how God wants us to praise him. 
And so we take all this in and we step back and we, we express our love for God with our mouths and praise and worship and we rest in his sovereign rule over every aspect of not just the universe but in our lives. And that posture then naturally overflows if it's present within us, it overflows to our fellow believers in the church family because this is not just, the idea of praise and worship is not just personal but it's corporate. It involves all of us as a church family. Now, does God command our praise because it brings him glory? Absolutely. He says that many times. As his people, we've been redeemed to that end and for that purpose. We've been redeemed and saved and forgiven so that we will praise his name. But the fact is, every human being is wired to praise something, right? We all value things. We all love things. And so if we're not going to praise God, we will always praise something else. And I want you to hear something that C.S. Lewis said Great quote from him in his reflection on the Psalms. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Think about that. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Did you catch that? He's saying that my delight in knowing and loving God won't be complete until it flows out of me in praise and worship. And as a result, Lewis says, every time God commands us to praise him for his glory, he's actually commanding us to bring our joy to its fullest height. So God's not some egomaniac. I've heard atheists make this case in debate after debate. Nasty allegation. Well, God's an egomaniac. He just says, you need to praise me. What he's actually doing is acting in love for us because our praising him leads us to the absolute height of our love, our joy, and our thankfulness. Does that not blow your mind? It's for us as well. So let's talk about this today. We're going to talk about praise and worship. Grab your Bibles. If you're not there already, let's go to Psalm 51. And this is simply my goal this morning, to cast the highest possible vision for worship. The highest possible vision for worship. And to connect it with two themes that David has been talking about in this psalm. Now, maybe you haven't done this before, connecting worship with confession and repentance. That's critical. So let's back up to verse 10. We'll reread a portion of what we studied last Sunday, and then we're going to read through verse 17. So verse 10 in Psalm 51, hear the word of the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted or restored to you. And now our four verses for this morning. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. I don't even think that's a word in the English, by the way. Darn that NASB. No, I love the New American Standard, but I don't think that's an actual word. Blood guiltiness. Is it? No, don't look it up. Put it this way. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Does that sound better? O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, 
you will not despise. All right, so let's work our way through this passage, see if we can, we can grasp more of what God wants in terms of our praise and worship. First of all, I want you to notice something, and I'll be honest, this is something I recently discovered. It dawned on me as I was studying this. Two weeks ago, we talked about the historical backdrop of this psalm, right? The sin with Bathsheba. But have you noticed that the text of Psalm 51 does not mention adultery or even sex? It's not there. David doesn't ask God for any of the things that we as modern men might pray for regarding sexual temptation. He doesn't pray for protected eyes. He doesn't pray for lust-free thoughts. He doesn't pray that he'll be surrounded by a group of men who will hold him accountable in his walk, all of which, by the way, are really good things, but they're not here in Psalm 51. And I think the reason for that is because sexual sin and adultery is a symptom of the disease, not the disease itself. And that's an important distinction. Why do people fall into sexual sin? It's deeper than just, oh, there's an attractive woman and I struggle with physical lust. It's actually deeper than that, isn't it? We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. David fell into sexual sin because in his innermost being, he had wandered away from his first love, which was the Lord. His heart was set on the kingdom of self, getting his desires met, his affections, not on the kingdom of God. That's that's the actual disease at the core of the story. So on that evening when David went for a stroll on his rooftop, he wasn't, he wasn't in a posture of steadfastness towards the Lord. He, was, he had a wandering heart, and so the result was predictable. When he was enticed, those affections in his heart, right? The deeper things in his heart. On the outside of his heart, he might have been, oh, I'm committed to Yahweh. But the deeper things came up very quickly, didn't they? Because his heart was set on his own kingdom. And that's what prevailed in that sin. But look at verse 14 now. While the sexual sin is not mentioned by David, the subsequent murder of Uriah is mentioned in Psalm 51. Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, he says. Now, by omitting that, David is not somehow trying to minimize his adultery. We all know it's a horrific sin. But it's interesting, at least in this psalm, that David has a deep, deep sense of grief over how he arranged for this loyal soldier of his to die in battle. It was as if he could hear the innocent blood of Uriah crying to him from the ground, right? Can you imagine the heaviness that he must have felt for that sin? Not just the death of Uriah, but for his family, for all those who were affected by that. He could hear the sound of innocent blood crying out. And so he specifically brings it before the Lord here. Then he says, once you've delivered me, Lord, from the penalty of that unfathomable sin because of your great mercy, then he says, I will finally be free to do what? To joyfully sing of your righteousness. That's an audacious claim, isn't it? We talked about it last week, that God can, can actually cover that sin, the sin of murder. It's an audacious claim. Deliver me, David says. And he trusts by faith that God will do that. And he says, once I've been cleansed from that unimaginable sin, then I can sing of your righteousness. And then he asks in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So here's, here's the truth we learn from this. Unconfessed, undealt with sin, without a doubt, will affect your praise and worship. It will. When you're controlled by sin and when you're stubbornly refusing to deal with it, to go to the Lord, to confess that sin and to repent, you will not feel like praising him. 
You can't. You just won't. That's why David asked God to do this thing for him. Open my lips. It's as if he's saying, my conscience has had shame me into silence. And now my lips are sealed because of the weight of my depravity. Lord, I need you to fix this because I can't do this without you. By the way, we read of something similar in the book of Isaiah, the very famous chapter six of Isaiah's prophecy. You, you probably know this. He's given this amazing vision of the throne room of God, right? And the Lord is seated on his throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. It's this majestic scene. And there are these seraphim, these angels that are calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And as they do that, the Lord speaks. And when his voice rings out, the foundations of this structure, whatever it is, begin to tremble and smoke fills the temple. It's a scene designed to cause awe in us, right? And so what does Isaiah do in that moment? As he sees all of this taking place, he cries out, what? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why does he say that? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's paralyzed by the sight and the sound of a being that is this powerful and this holy. And he knows in that millisecond he's about to be destroyed. Because he can't stand as a sinner in the presence of God. But then what happens? He becomes the recipient of God's undeserved favor. We call that grace in the New Testament, don't we? God grants him the gift of forgiveness in that moment. And it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That is what David needed. Just as Isaiah needed it to be in the presence of God, David needed that. Touch the coal to my mouth, O Lord, so that my lips and my mouth will once again be clean. Then I will sing your praises and I will speak of your mercy and your goodness. And listen, friends, this is what we're going to do forever. We are going to be singing the praises of our Savior and King forever. Have you ever taken a long look at the pictures of the heavenly realms in the book of Revelation? I mean, not just read past them to see which eschatological framework is correct. I'm pre-trib, I'm whatever. Like, we, we tend to read the book of Revelation because we want to fit everything into a framework. But have you stopped and let the language sink into your heart about what the heavenly realms are like? About what our future looks like? In Revelation 4, after all those seven letters to the churches are written, we get this, John's taken up into heaven, he gets this vision like Isaiah, of the throne room of God. And it's not gonna be on the screen. You don't have to look it up. I just want you to sit back and listen to the language. This is what John sees. Imagine this now as I read. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven, seven lamps of fire burning before 
the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, hear this now, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. What a picture of worship in the heavenly places. In this spiritual dimension that we can't see right now, but we know is true and exists, there is this place where constant worship takes place. And I, listen, I know this is a vision. I know the language of revelation can be difficult. I don't fully understand all of the ramifications of the scene for you and I when we get to that dimension someday. But this much seems clear, that God is far greater far more holy, far more powerful than we can even imagine down here on the earth. Beyond what we can imagine. And even though we always say, well, God is worthy of our worship. Right now, we have no idea how worthy he is. We will see it someday, but now, right, we see dimly through this glass. But we should take this language seriously. And that language keeps going in Revelation. Chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. You have this myriad of angels. You have this book of life. You have the presence of, of this one who was first called the Lion of Judah, then the Root of David. Then he's called the Lamb standing as if slain. And to him is sung this song. Are you ready? Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, is that all? All of it. All of it. And then there's more falling down and more worship and song. And it's not just angels and elders, but a, a great multitude of saints as well. People saved from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they stand before the throne and they sing alongside the angels, the two families of God, singing together in unison, worshiping the Lord. And the saints fall on their faces and they worship some more, saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Wow. So I gather from this that in some sense that I don't fully understand yet, that worship is going to be our ceaseless activity for all time, forevermore, and it's going to be our greatest joy in eternity, which again, I always want to think, okay, lofty language, let's bring it down here now. Here's the question then. If that's our future, Shouldn't we, whenever we gather like this, because we, we are a microcosm of that great multitude in heaven, Oak Hill Bible Church, I know sometimes we don't feel like we're that significant, right? But this is a microcosm of that multitude in heaven. Shouldn't we approach the throne of God with that similar reverence and awe that we read about in Revelation? But do we? Do we? 
The best detailed definition of worship that I've seen comes from a, a 19th century English minister by the name of William Temple. Here, here's how, oh, I'm way behind. Here's what he said. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That is a beautiful, all-encompassing definition. And you'll see there are five things about God that we should focus on as we worship. See it? His holiness, his truth, his beauty, his love, and his purpose. And, and he gives us five vehicles for doing that. Our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, and our will. Wow. Remember how Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and in truth, which lines up with this. So the essence of worship is not all the external trappings that we often focus on, but spirit and truth, which means engaging both the head and the heart. And occasionally in scripture, you see God's people doing it well, and it serves as a great model for us. Whenever I think of this type of corporate worship on the earth, I reflect on that. I, I look at the language in Revelation, but it always takes me to, to Nehemiah chapter eight. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Nehemiah chapter eight, this is after the Jews had come back from exile in Babylon. They'd come back to Judea, right? And they were resettling in the land and they were hungry for God's presence and they were hungry to hear God's word. Here's a portion of what it says. It says, all the people, now this is a regathered people after the exile, all the people gathered as one man, that's important, in unity. They gathered as one man at the square in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Can you imagine? Giant mass crowd of, of Jews, and they're saying, Ezra, lead us, open up the Torah, read to us. It says, Ezra then brought the law before the assembly, and as he opened it, all the people stood. We didn't have to say, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. They just stood to honor the word. And it says, all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, lifting up their hands. Oh, can't do that. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What a picture, right? So sometimes we get it right. So, all right, question for you now. What is on your heart and what is in your mind when we gather here as a church family on Sundays? What's, on, what's in your heart, what's in your mind as the worship, we call it the worship service, right? As that begins. What's your mindset? Is it on all the, you know, I had to get up early and all the work I had to do to get here on time? Is it, oh, did my, were my kids obedient on the way to drop them off at the Acorn Ministry? You get here, are you thinking about the temperature of the room and what kind of decor we have or, or the, the font on the screen? As the service began this morning, were you focused on, well, who's leading and who's singing and who's playing? And what's Jeff wearing today? Nobody thinks about that, it's okay. And other donuts in the lobby today. I mean, all these things, right, on our hearts. 
But go back to the language we read in Revelation. All these things in our hearts. Be honest now. Do you view the worship service as a time when you function as part of an audience that watches the elders and the praise team do their thing? Is, is that the way you see Sunday mornings? I'm, I'm part of the audience. If so, I have a stunning bit of news for you this morning. The audience this morning is only one person, and it's not you. Let that sink in. Maybe you've never thought about this before. You are not the audience. The audience of all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our audience is him. That's it. This entire service is a sacrifice and an offering to him for his glory and for his pleasure. And you are actually one of the cast members who brings the offering. You brought an offering this morning to the one person in the audience. So guys like me and Grant and Gabe, we're just the leaders. We're the ones who give you prompts to participate. But it's all for the audience of one. So the elder, the elder comes up and he says, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then the worship leader says, let's sing together. And the goal of all of that is as one man, as one people, we join our hearts and our voices to worship the one man, the one person in our audience. As David says in Psalm 22, he is enthroned upon our praises. Get that. As we sing, he is enthroned upon our praises. He comes near to enjoy the sweet aroma of our offering to him. Here's, here's my point. When we gather like this, it's a supernatural moment. Divine things are happening when we gather together. Don't take it for granted. Right now, here on the earth, we're rehearsing for eternity. We're practicing. And we get the privilege of praying together and confessing our sins and studying what God has shown us in his word and crying out to him with our lips, declaring and singing of his goodness and grace. And we get to do this as one body, with one voice, as one family. So it's a blessing and a privilege every Sunday when we get together to be able to do this. Can we remember that? All right, let's keep going in our text in Psalm 51. Go back to verse 16, and let's see what else David has to say about this. He says, for you did not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Now this is very instructive for us. There's two things we can learn from this amazing statement. Remember, this is the king of Israel who loves the Lord, loves God's tabernacle, and must have loved the fact that God had given to Israel this sacrificial system which allowed for atonement of sins to take place. He loved these things. Keep in mind that the idea and practice of sacrifice goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and 4, right? The first sacrifice, of course, was God who, who, who killed an animal in order to give coverings for Adam and Eve. But then we read about sacrifices offered by Abel and then Noah, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even Job. And then the whole sacrificial system sort of blossoms in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. We have all these detailed instructions of how sacrifices are, are to be done. We have burnt offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings, all given with very specific instructions for very specific reasons. And historically, that system was provided to answer one, one question. 
how can a holy God live in, the, live in the midst of a sinful people? There had to be an answer to that question because God had said, Israel is my people, I will be your God, I will dwell in your midst, but how? If he is that holy and they are that sinful? Well, the sacrificial system was the answer to that question. But there were a few conditions, right? First, that sacrificed animal had to be spotless. It had to be the best of the herd to cover sin. Second, the person offering the sacrifice had to identify with the animal being sacrificed. He had to recognize that that animal is a substitute for me. And then third, the person offering the animal had to put it to death. Blood had to be shed. And when, the, when those conditions were met, by faith, and this is so important to understand, it's always been by faith. By faith, the sacrificial death of that animal provided a temporary covering for sin. Just temporary, right? God was satisfied for the moment. He could dwell with his people, but only, it was only temporary, and that's why the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. But God made provision for that. I, I recently read an article by uh, Nancy Guthrie, who's a wonderful author, and she described this process and what it must have felt like. Have you ever tried to put yourself in the sandals of an ancient Israelite, bringing your animal to the altar and slaughtering it? Yeesh. Like that's, that's like, mm, for us Westerners, like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But here's what she writes. She says, for us, sacrifice means giving something up or taking something on that costs us a little money or comfort or convenience. Oh, we're so sacrificial, right? She says, sacrifice in the Bible, however, is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Whew. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, she writes. The violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of blood, the feel of pulling the animal apart, and the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering that sacrifice, knowing that it was your sin that made that death necessary. And imagine the frustration in knowing that you'll be back tomorrow or next week because you're going to sin again. The sacrificial provisions in the book of Leviticus teach us that the Israelites could approach God with a worthy blood sacrifice, but there was a cost to it, right? You had to drag the best animal in your entire herd, maybe, maybe the future of your entire homestead, the best one. You'd drag it all the way up to the tabernacle or to the temple only to watch it just be slaughtered and burned. That's a sacrifice. And imagine the emotional and spiritual burden you would feel. If you were a true believer in Yahweh, and not all Israel was, right? But if you're a true believer, you would think that animal right now, that should be me. I deserve that. That animal has to die because of my sin. And they would have taken that seriously. But all this raises a question then about what David says in Psalm 51. He says, God does not delight in that sacrifice, right? He says he's not pleased with the burnt offering. The question is, how is that possible if God himself established the sacrificial system? And the answer is obvious. The problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with what God established. The glitch in the system is who? It's us. The glitch in the system, as always, is the sinful heart of man. Because men and women were prone to come to the altar 
bringing with them, yes, an animal, but actually an empty and vain offering. No meaning, no faith, no repentance. Thinking that the animal itself could take away their sin. This is who we are as human beings, even today. And we have to acknowledge this. We, as human beings, can get into habits, even in church on Sundays. If we don't find ways to remind ourselves why we do what we do, we are prone to just go through the motions, which is especially dangerous when it comes to worshiping a God who knows everything about us. <laughs> oh, I'm fooling God today. I'm, 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 I'm mouthing the words. Really? The God who knows, every, knows your heart better than you know it? In the days of Isaiah, Yahweh rebuked his people for this very thing. He said, I'm doing it again. He said, this people draws near to me with their words and honors me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their, listen, their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They're just going through the motions and they still think they're okay. They think they're okay before me. If it was just about bringing animals, David says in Psalm 51, if you delighted in the sacrifice itself, I would give it. I would give you every animal on the earth, Lord, if it pleased you. That's what he's saying here. But that's not what God is. God owns all the animals. You can't just, well, God, this is my special animal. God says, I own that animal. I bring every animal. That's not what God is after. What he wants is the heart behind the offering. That's what matters. That is what actually determines whether the offering is acceptable in his sight. The heart of the worshiper. He goes on to verse 17. To clarify, the sacrifices of God, and again, I don't like the NAS here. The better way is the sacrifice pleasing to God is what? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite or humble heart. God will not despise that. He will not turn away from that. So no more animals. No more ceremonies. No more external religious activity. God, you don't delight in those things. You're not pleased with those offerings. Without the reality of a broken and humble heart in our innermost being, in the depths of our heart, our sacrifices, our offerings, our worship is in vain. That's what David's saying. The prophet Joel, who we don't often cite in church, speaks for Yahweh in chapter two of his prophecy. The Lord calls Israel, he says, return to me, Israel, with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. And in the Old Testament culture, that was how you expressed grief and anguish. You would, you would tear your clothes. But like any other external movement, it can be what? A show. This is what we do. I'm like, ah, I'll show everybody how grief-stricken I am over my sin and I'll rend my garments. God says, nope. I want you to rend your heart. I want you to tear open your heart before me. So what exactly does David mean when he speaks of this? A spirit or a heart that is broken. See, all, see that sounds almost foreign to us, right? Because when, when we see broken things, we don't value them. We're like, Get rid of it. What's the use of a broken pot or a broken you know, jar? We just throw it out. But in Psalm 34, David says this, the Lord is near, near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. God says through Isaiah, I dwell on high, on a high and holy place. And also, he says, so I, I do dwell up in that, that throne room, but also, he says, with a contrite and the lowly of spirit. Why? In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So, so it must be a really good thing then to be lowly and humble and broken, right? Do we believe that? Is this not one of the more curious things about the Christian faith? That what we call victory does not line up with what the world calls a win. So we gotta be, we gotta be countercultural. The world says, this is the win, and the Bible says, nope, this is the win. In the Christian worldview, strength comes through weakness, greatness comes through humility, and health comes through being broken. In the wisdom of God, the believer who is full of praise, joy, and thankfulness, those three things we talked about at the beginning, is the one who is lowly, broken, and contrite. It's completely countercultural. And this is why David suffered so greatly in that period. He talks about it in Psalm 32, when he, he refused to come and deal with his sin. And he says what? His body wasted away under the weight of that. He had no praise. He had no joy. He had no thankfulness in his heart as long he is, as his heart was unbroken over this evil that he had committed. He just couldn't come into the presence of the Lord. If he had tried, he would have said, like Isaiah, woe to me, I'm ruined. I can't be in your presence. And so as we saw in verse 10, David said, Lord, create in me a new heart. It's the same thing as saying, break my heart. I need a total reboot in my heart. Take my prideful lying heart and break it so that I can be clean before you again. I'll tell you a secret. Every single Sunday, David's prayer and Isaiah's prayer is my prayer. Every single Sunday. It's my prayer Sunday morning when I wake up. It's my prayer as we're ten air driving over to church. It's my prayer as I'm standing in the back waiting to come up to preach. My prayer is, I am ruined before you, Lord, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I really am. I'm not worthy to be your mouthpiece this morning, Lord, to teach your people, because I'm a man of unclean lips. So I, if, if only you could be in my mind in the back of the room back there. I am desperately confessing my sin. I am asking God to wash me thoroughly. I'm asking him to fill me with his spirit because I can't do this. I, my words have no power. You understand the preacher's words have no power. It's only when God inhabits these words and the spirit does a work in your mind and in your heart to build you up and to convict you of sin and to guide you into truth. So each and every day, but especially here on Sundays, I want to have a heart that is broken before God in that sense. That's for all of us. We all need to be, we all need to be broken and contrite in our hearts if we want to abide on any deep level with Christ. And I know you want that. I know you want that. So we need to ask the Lord to continually do this work in us. The great Scottish preacher Samuel Rutherford put it this way. He said, seek a broken heart for sin, for without it there is no meeting with Christ. Did you catch that? Without that, you cannot meet with Christ. He will not have it. Are you prepared to do that? 
to ask God to kindly, lovingly break your heart over the sinful things that are in the innermost parts of your heart so that you can abide with him more deeply. I hope so, because that's the path to true freedom. That's the path to joy. That's what David discovered. When we appeal to the mercy of God and we confess our sin, he delights in us. This is, again, something that we've struggled with. We, we just want to be in guilt and shame and I can't come to God. So we have a choice when we sin. I can move towards God or away from him. And we often choose going away. But he delights to lift us up when we humble ourselves before him. Remember, we talked about the story of the prodigal last week. God doesn't stand far off. Yes, he will discipline us. Yes, he will convict us. But he awaits our return with open arms, doesn't he? Do we believe that? The enemy knows this, by the way. The enemy knows this is true about God. And he also knows what's true about you and how much you are driven by guilt and shame rather than the opposite. And what he will do is he will, he will do everything he can to manipulate you so that you won't run back to your father. So don't believe his lies. Amen? So let me wrap up by pointing you to my favorite New Testament passage on this subject. In the book of Hebrews... Someday we're going to preach through Hebrews. You heard it. Elders have been wanting this for a long time. They want Revelation first. I told them no. Maybe Hebrews. But in Hebrews, we're told of how the Old Testament sacrifices were in fact only shadows and copies of the true sacrifice that Christ would make someday. Right? That Jesus is the original And the Old Testament was a copy and a shadow, right? Because Christ brought one sacrifice sufficient for all. And because of that great truth, Hebrews 10 gives us, I mean, this passage is so beautiful. It says, because of what Jesus has done, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, did did Israel have confidence to go into the holy of holies? Absolutely not. Jesus tore that veil and said, go. It's mind-blowing. He says, saint, believer, go into the holy of holies. What? Yeah. We have confidence to enter the holy place by only one thing, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean, clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Guys, that is the the best news you'll ever hear. That is the best news of the gospel right there. And then in light of that truth, he instructs you and I about what it means to come together Even this morning, as a church family, he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. By the way, that's part of why you gather on Sunday, to push each other towards godliness, interacting with each other, sharpening iron, stimulating love and good deeds amongst one another, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day Drawing near. Anybody see the day drawing near? There should be some urgency in our worship here on Sunday mornings in doing exactly what this says. Here at Oak Hill, we love to sing the song, Come Thou Fount. 
And the reason we love to sing it, because there's a couple lines in that song that are so dead on about our human condition that every time we sing it, I say to myself, yep, that's me, Lord, that is me. Anybody else? Here's some of the lines from this. It starts out with this, Jesus sought me as a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. Isn't that true? He came to me. He sought me out and saved me. That's number one. But then second, still we're prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander, are they not? Lord, I feel it. There's things competing for my attention and my affections. I feel it, prone to leave the God I know I love. And then it goes on. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. If it wasn't for that grace, I'm undone. I am daily in debt to that. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart so that I won't wander from my first love. And then even though it's in the first stanza, this is my favorite line. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for what? Songs of loudest praise. How many of you guys don't sing at all on Sundays? Or are you just really quiet? Just mouthing the words. It calls for what? Songs of loudest praise. If, if that is true, it calls for songs of loudest praise. We have to have our hearts tuned to sing of his grace. And again, not just here on Sundays, but every day. We're living sacrifices, right? All of our lives. The God who chose us and died for us and redeemed us is worthy of all of us, our, our hearts, our lips, and our lives. And listen, I know that what I've shared with you this morning, it's a lot. I know I've been all over the place, right? Let's see, we've been in Psalm 51. We've been in Isaiah. We've been in Revelation, Nehemiah, Joel, all kinds of places. But as we close, let me try to make these connections just so if I've lost you, you're like, oh, I get it. It's coming together. Praise and worship has to be at the center of our lives as Christ followers. It's not optional. I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I, I, I show up late for church because I ah, the songs. I'm there for the message, so I, I come a little late. See my face? Really? It's got to be at the center of our lives. And praise and worship are necessarily connected to the lifelong practice of confession and repentance so that we can come into his presence, so that we can sing of his righteousness, so that we don't come and go, oh, woe is me, I'm ruined. But no, I can come with confidence into the holy place and to sing his praises. But that requires confession and repentance. It requires having a broken and contrite heart before him. We're gonna be praising him for all eternity, so let's start doing it now. Let's stop standing in the room as a, as a part of the audience because we're not the audience. We're participants. Come hungry on Sunday mornings. Come hungry to, to sing praises. Come hungry to hear the word preached, to hear God's voice in his word. That's a privilege. What is the disposition that God desires of you? What are the three things? Praise, rejoicing, and thankfulness. What does he not want? Empty words, false offerings, false ceremonies. He wants a heart that is aligned with his, a heart that is tuned to sing his graces. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you a few moments to, to talk to the Lord yourself.
about anything that you've heard this morning. Maybe you need to confess sin right now. So you can sing. We have three songs we're going to sing at the end of the service. And maybe you need to confess sin right now so that, so that you're not undone before the Lord, but you can come into his presence with confidence. Maybe you just need to praise the Lord right now for his cleansing activity in your life. Whatever it is, take a few moments and I'll close in just a second. Oh God, we ask that you would forgive us for our improper view of, of worship at times. The things that we have learned that are, that are not true about church life, about what it means to come into your presence. Lord, may we discard those things this morning and look to your word and straighten out our, our theology and our understanding of what it really means to praise your name. We thank you that your word does that, that it corrects us, that it shows us, that your spirit convicts us in these things. And and God, even now we can confess and say, Lord, I didn't know, or Lord, I've, I've had this wrong and I want, to, I want to worship you and praise you as you deserve because you are, you are worthy. So thank you, Lord, for your correction. Lord, we pray that you would continue in, to work in our lives, that you would break our hearts of the things that need to be broken, whether that's pride or self-will or selfishness or stubbornness or envy, whatever it might be, God, that you would break our hearts and humble us before you. Because we know you've told us, Lord, that when we're, we're broken and lowly and contrite before you, that's when we can praise. That's when we have joy. That's when we can be thankful. And so as we humble ourselves, Lord, lift us up. Show us more of your majesty and goodness. Build up this church family, God, to be stronger and stronger in you so that we might be a testimony in this valley together with one voice. Thank you, God, for our time together this morning. Now, Lord, even as we sing more praises, we sing three more songs this morning, God, would you inhabit our praises? Would you be enthroned by the words that we sing to you this morning? We love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what allows us to be here. Thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.